and reflect with one another with hearts full of gratitude for all that God has done on our behalf through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us this morning, let me add my voice to that of Pastor Travis in welcoming you to our service today. It is our habit here at Woodlawn to take books of the Bible and to preach through those books of the Bible, for we believe that God has revealed himself to, his, to, to us through his word, and if we want to know who is God, we will know that through his word. And so we give ourselves to preaching through books of the Bible, rotating between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And today, we're going to reflect together on a theme of thanksgiving from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 18. And then beginning next Sunday, we're going to reflect with one another on the incarnation of Christ. And we'll look at several texts from the New Testament together as we reflect, and the Old Testament, as we reflect upon the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians chapter 5, we are today reflecting on this text of Scripture primarily for uh, verse 16 and 17 and 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But this text of Scripture occurs in a context. It appears in a certain place in this text of Scripture as Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is for sure writing to the church at Thessalonica for a number of reasons. Perhaps the primary reason is to give them instructions concerning the end times. There appears to be in First and Second Thessalonians some um, misunderstanding about when Christ would come. There's also intense persecution that is happening here in the life of the church, and the church itself is under persecution, and so Paul is writing to encourage the brothers and sisters in Christ that they might indeed persevere until the end when Christ himself will return. And of course, much like what we even see in the book of 1 Corinthians, or perhaps we even know experientially in our own lives, the church is not a gathering of God's people who are without sin. We are still sinners who are redeemed by Christ, but we still struggle with sin. And Paul, even in the context of the book at First Thessalonians in chapter 4, for example, addresses some specific sin issues that are taking place in the life of the church at Corinth. We come here to these final instructions in the book beginning in chapter 5, verse 12. And Paul, in verses 12 through verse 22, is going to fire off for us 15 imperatives. 15 imperatives. More imperatives occur in just this short 10, 11 verses than the entirety of both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. It's kind of like making a, a grocery list. Paul comes to the end of the book of 1st Thessalonians, and he wants everybody to know real quick exactly what he wants them to do. You're, you're getting ready to go to the grocery store, right? And you've, you've got your list, and maybe you've organized that list by an order of priority of what we really need in case I run out of time going down the aisles. Or perhaps you 
organize that list by the aisles that, that these items occur on. But you've got your grocery list, and there are all these things listed here that, that you're going to have to go get. This is Paul's grocery list, if you will, for you and me as he comes to the end of this book. These are things that he wants you and me to know. These are things that we must do. If Paul were standing before us today, I think he would say to us, these are aspects, characteristics of what it means to live Christianly in an unchristian world. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul is having to give a list of Christian characteristics to the church at Thessalonica, and by extension, to you and me? The fact of the matter is, even though Christ has redeemed us, we've been redeemed from our sin and the consequences of that sin, there are moments in our life where we are not perfect. In fact, if you would put a video recorder on me and follow me around on any given day, you would find that there are moments in my life, and my uh, sweet wife and family over here will attest to it, there are moments when I just, Brother Rob, don't live Christianly. You get angry at the littlest things. You know, the person slammed on their brakes, for example, right at the red light because you were trying to make it through the yellow light, and they slammed on their brakes because they were trying to abide by the law, and you're like, oh my goodness, this guy's an idiot. I mean, that's what I'm thinking. I'm just being honest with you this morning. I should be really thinking, I pray that person is a believer in Jesus. Lord bless him, right? There are moments in our hearts and our lives where we too sin. And Paul is writing these closing instructions to the church at Thessalonica so that they might know how to live Christianly in an unchristian world. Paul collects these sayings around the three larger narratives, three larger headings. The first that we see here in verses 12 and 13 is going to be instructions to the church in terms of how the church is to respond to her leaders. And then in verses 14 and 15, Paul is going to give instruction to the leaders in terms of how they are to lead the people of God. And then in verses 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, Paul is going to give instructions to the entirety of the church in terms of how we are to respond to one another and ultimately in response and obedience to the Lord. Do not quench the Spirit, he'll say. Look at this unfolding of these instructions as Paul calls you and me to live our lives faithfully as brothers and sisters to live Christianly in an unchristian world. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. This is Paul's instructions to 
the, the church. This is Paul's instruction to the church in terms of how they are to respond back to their leaders, back to their pastors. And notice what, what Paul urges. First of all, he says to respect those who labor among you, to acknowledge, to to honor those who are serving in your midst. You might remember Paul's admonition to, or sorry, the writer of Hebrews' admonition in Hebrews chapter 13 to obey your leaders. Paul has given instructions to the church in terms of how you are to respond to those that God has set in leadership among the church at Christ. Acknowledge them. Honor them. This is a disposition of your heart. This is a disposition of your mind. This is Paul saying to you, this is how you are to think toward those that God has called to lead in the context of the local church. And who are those that God has called to lead in the context of the local church? Your, your pastors, your, your shepherds, your, your elders, your bishops. And Paul is saying to the church at large, think this way toward those who labor among you. And then notice this other designation he gives for the leaders. Those who are over you in the Lord. This word that he uses here for over is a word that you are familiar with. It's a word that we oftentimes see translated as rule. So we think of it in the context of 1 Timothy chapter 3, Timothy is giving the listing of the qualifications of, of the elders, and one of the things that he says is that an elder must be one who rules well in the context of his home. For if he cannot rule well in the context of his home, don't expect him to rule well then in the context of, of the church. Or some of our Bibles translates that word manage. He should be one who manages his, his home well. Paul has given for us instructions of, of how the, the elders, the pastors, lead in the context of the life of the church and how you are to respond in relationship to those. Respect those. Give honor. Acknowledge those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. And then notice this last phrase, and admonish you. Now, this word admonish is a, a Greek word that we get the concept of nuthetic counseling from. This is a word that can, in a positive sense, mean uh, to instruct or to warn, or perhaps in a negative sense, to admonish. It's, it's what we do with our children, for example. There are moments when we pull our children in close, and you're going to teach your child the lesson of, of not running out into the street, right? If you live in a neighborhood like I do in Shenandoah, we are out in the yard playing, particularly when the kids were smaller. You didn't want to stay cooped up in the house with small kids, right? You want to let those kids out. And one of the important lessons is you cannot run in the road. So you take that kid by the hand, and you bring him to the sidewalk, and you say to them, don't go past the sidewalk. Why? You got a two to three foot barrier there, right? Don't, don't cross this area. And then you're out in the yard one day throwing the baseball or, or the football to the child, and what happens? 
you make a bad throw or they make a bad catch, it hits off their hands, it, it fumbles out, and guess where it goes? Right into the road. And guess what Junior does? Without even thinking. He takes off running toward the road, and what you can see that he can't see behind him is coming a vehicle, and what do you do? Johnny, now come back here, buddy. Hurry up. What do you say? Stop! It startles a kid, and they stop, and then you say, David, turn around and look, buddy. Remember what Dave told you? Don't go past the sidewalk. But I told you not to go past the sidewalk because, see, there's a truck coming. And if you would have continued out into the road, you could have been hit by that truck. Both of those, word, both of those actions are seen in the context of this word, to admonish and to instruct. And why are you admonishing and instructing in this way? There's a truth. There's a foundation. There's a lesson that you want that child to, to understand, to, to know, to be aware of, so that they can, in moments, make split, quick, quick split decisions that affect the trajectory of their lives, right? I want David, when he hits that sidewalk, to immediately stop even if the ball has entered into the road, right? This word is a combination of, of two Greek words and literally in some way means to put something into someone's mind. This is what you're doing, for example, when you teach Sunday school, right? You're seeking to instruct with the Word of God, teach a principle, teach a biblical principle, a biblical concept, and, and you want that to be stuck in a child's mind. This is what Paul is saying the pastors of the local church should be doing. They should be laboring among the people. They should be ruling among the people. They should be instructing the church of God. And how else do we respond to them? Verse 13 and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Church family, this is Paul's admonition to you in the way that you are to respond, reflect, and think toward those that God has set in leadership over you, toward your pastors. And notice what Paul says. We see the first uh, imperative in this text. Be at peace. This concept of peace is a two-way street. You bear responsibility, and myself and Ryan and Travis, we bear a responsibility. This imperative in the Greek New Testament is in the present tense, and it connotes the idea of continually be at peace. Our responsibility toward one another to, should be at all times seeking to be at peace in the body of Christ. Now, we can still disagree with each other, but even in that disagreement, it matters how we approach it. It matters how we think. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes what's happening in context and relationship with those that we know best 
there's this automatic graciousness or kindness at times that we're willing to extend to those that we're thinking well about, that we're loving, that we're caring for. And Paul is saying in the context of this passage of Scripture, you, the church, collectively, should be at peace. And one of the ways that we do that is by setting our hearts in a right disposition and the way in which we think about those that God has placed in leadership over us namely our pastors. And then look what he he says uh, next here in verses 14 and, and 15. To those of you who are tasked with leadership, this is how you are to respond. For your part, Paul says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. My translation says idol. Some of your translations are going to say the unruly, the undisciplined, the disorderly, admonish them. Secondly, encourage the faint-hearted. Thirdly, help the weak. Fourthly, be patient with them all. Look at this first admonition that Paul gives to the pastors in terms of how they're to respond to the people of God. We urge you, brothers, to do what? Give a strong warning to the unruly, to the undisciplined, to the disorderly. One of the roles that God has tasked your pastors with doing is instructing you. This is the same word that he used a few moments ago with putting things in your mind, if you will, that will help you live in a right way ultimately before the Lord. And Paul is saying one of the functions, one of the kindnesses that God has given to the life of the church are faithful pastors who will warn those who are walking in a way that is not Christ-like. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't always like to be told that I'm doing something wrong. Y'all are really quiet this morning. I don't like it when Miss Richardson very kindly and graciously says to me, Lewis, I've asked you for 12 straight weeks. Would you please pick your clothes up off of the floor? She said years she's been asking me that. <laughs> well, that's my floor. I'm not thinking that. Right? We don't always like to be corrected, do we? But brothers and sisters, the fact of the matter is, every one of us, at moments in our lives, are going to act in ways, or think in ways, that are contrary to the text of Scripture and be thankful that God has given to you, God has given to us, faithful brothers who should come alongside us and warn us in those moments, correct us in those moments, instruct us in those moments. Pastors, admonish 
the idle, the disorderly, the undisciplined. Now you might say, Pastor, how in the world do you get like three or four different translations of this one word? Unruly, disorderly, idle. I don't necessarily think that someone that is idle is, is necessarily someone that is disruptive. Uh, this is a word that Paul uses on several occasions, and the root of this word occurs three or four times in First and Second Thessalonians. And in the instances in which it occurs, it always occurs in the context of one who is unwilling to work. Look with me real quickly to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, and then verse 11. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in what? Idleness. And not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. And what was that tradition? That you should work. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Look again in verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in what? Idleness. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Paul could perhaps be speaking of this group of people who are being idle in the context of the body of Christ, but for sure the emphasis is not upon necessarily the fact that they are not working, rather the emphasis is upon their, their attitude, their rebellious attitude, attitude toward the obligation to work. They are rejecting that foundational principle that you and I bear a responsibility to work. So he says you should admonish the idol. Secondly, look what he says, encourage the faint-hearted. Regularly, continually encourage the faint-hearted. Who are the faint-hearted? Look back with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, Paul has something to say to a group of people who seem to be faint-hearted, and their concern is, what happens to Uncle Bob or Daddy Bill or Mama Susie? They passed away and Jesus has not returned yet. Look what he says to him, verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. <clears throat> For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with those, him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds 
to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And notice how he ends verse 18, therefore do what? Encourage one another with this revelation, with these words. One of the roles, one of the tasks that God has given to the pastors of the local church is that they should be ones who encourage the faint-hearted. How do I encourage the faint-hearted, friends? By communicating the truth of God's word to you. There is no greater comfort or encouragement that I can give you, or Travis can give you, or Ryan can give you, than that of the truth of the Word of God. Paul is saying, a faithful pastor, a faithful shepherd, will be one who encourages the faint-hearted. But then notice, thirdly, be one who will help the weak. Help those who are weak in faith. You might remember from a few months ago, our time in the book of James, this word occurs in James chapter 5, as James is admonishing the church in great suffering to pray for one another, and he says, pray for the sick. This is this same word, and I made an argument to you from James chapter 5 that James is not ultimately admonishing or encouraging the church to uh, anoint with oil people who are sick physically, even though praying for people who are sick physically is perfectly fine for Christian people to do. But the, the priority, the emphasis is upon praying for those who are sick in their faith or weak in their faith. And this is exactly what what Paul is doing here in 1 Thessalonians. He's encouraging the pastors to be ones who help the weak, who are faithful to communicate the truths of, of God's Word, those who are weak spiritually or sick spiritually. And there's an indication from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that there are indeed a group of people who are in this church who are weak spiritually. You might remember the admonition from chapter 4 for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger in these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you now, there's an indication that there are a group of people inside the context of this local church who are weak spiritually. And you know what a good shepherd does? You know what a good pastor does? He helps them. He communicates the Word of God to them. He challenges them. He walks alongside them as they pursue holiness before the Lord. But what else does he do? He is patient with them all. Now this is why I'm grateful for a collection of pastors. Because I have a A-plus in patience. I'm the most patient guy you'll ever meet in your life. I'm lying to you. Pray for me to be more patient at times. But where I lack patience, your brothers, Travis and Ryan, 
exude impatience. We should be patient and kind and gracious with one another. Why? See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to every one. This is the last aspect that a good shepherd, a good pastor will do is to make sure that people aren't repaying evil. And who sets for us the example of what that is to look like in the body of Christ? Jesus himself. Jesus didn't repay evil for evil, did he? No, Jesus taught us to even turn the the other cheek. Now, Jesus isn't some pacifist that's saying to the church, be weak in that way. Jesus is communicating to us how we are to respond to one another. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to be patient and kind and gracious and, and not return evil for evil. So we have admonition for how the churches respond to the pastors, how the pastors are to respond to the church. And then look what he does in closing. This is how the church is to collectively worship with one another. Notice what he says. Our worship should be God-centered and not man-centered. How do we do that? We rejoice always. We pray without ceasing. We give thanks in all circumstances. This concept of rejoicing is much like uh, some of these other aspects that we saw a few moments ago where I said this is our disposition. This is the way that we are to be thinking. Uh, Paul is not saying that we are always going to experience joyful circumstances. In fact, Jesus would have something to say about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Look with me in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 12. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 12. Listen to what Jesus says to the church as they face intense persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, what should you do? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is where? In heaven. See, friends, when we gather with one another, our disposition should be one of rejoicing. Joy is the disposition that God has given to you and me that regardless of our circumstances, our focus is always on Christ. Many of you in the context of this room have faced unusual, difficult, hard circumstances in life. God has not promised us that life would be easy. God has not promised us life void of hardship, or persecution, or difficulty. But we do have this promise that even in the midst of all of those things, what can we do? We can rejoice. When, friends? When do we rejoice? Always. At every moment. Through every circumstance. That joy is a disposition knowing 
and hoping in the return of Christ. How did Paul say to the church that they should view their current circumstances? Some of you have fallen asleep. You're you're in the grave. But don't fret over that. Rejoice in the truth. Jesus is coming again. That is our hope, church. Not only should we rejoice, look what he says, we should pray without ceasing. Or as Psalm 105 says to us, we should always seek his face. Prayer is our acknowledging that we are not in control and that God is in control. Prayer is our regular communication and acknowledgement that we desperately need God. Prayer is our reminder that we are ultimately submitted to the reign of God. Prayer is our opportunity to express our hearts, desires, and cares, and concerns at the feet of one and only one who can take care of and answer and provide for every one of those circumstances. And when should we pray, friends? What should be our heart's disposition before God? What should be our mind's disposition towards circumstances, towards situations, toward moments? One of continual submission before the Lord, acknowledging He is in control. How do we do that? Through prayer. Through acknowledging our need for God's work. And then look what he says. Give thanks in all circumstances. The most thankful people in all the world should be who? Believers. The most thankful people in all the world should be people like you and me who have been redeemed from our, from our sin. We've received salvation. How do we ultimately rejoice always, pray always, give thanks always, acknowledging this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus? How do we do all of these things? The linchpin is verse 19. As we learn to be people who are always submitted to the Spirit, praying, rejoicing, giving thanks are the work of the Spirit and the life of the believer. We read these things, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, and we tend to think of these things individually. So we think, okay, I can always be in a, I can always be in a, a posture of prayer, if you will. So even when I'm at that red light and that person in front of me slammed on their brakes so as not to go through the red light on the yellow light, even though I wanted to go through the yellow light or the red light, we tend to think, well, I'm stopped here. I can take a moment and pray. Perhaps there's something weighing on my mind or... 
Perhaps there's a, a church member that I'm aware of that a circumstance is taking place in their life, or, or I'm aware of a situation in my family's life. I can take that moment and I can, I can pray in that moment. I can continually be in prayer in that way, right? We read this passage and it says rejoice always, and we think, okay, I can be a good employee at work. I can be someone whose disposition is always one of joyful thankfulness before God for what he has accomplished on my behalf. But what you don't see so easily in English that screams at us in Greek is that these words are plural. You, we, should rejoice always. We should pray without ceasing. We should give thanks to God in all circumstances. See, friends, what Paul is reminding us in the context of this passage is that the way we rightly express joy prayer and thankfulness as a family of is as a family of God collectively comes together this should be our disposition in worship and what's that disposition in worship friends a theocentric view of worship We have not ultimately gathered as the body of Christ and this place to meet the needs of any individual person. For example, but we have gathered together as brothers and sisters to rightly place our focus upon what God has accomplished on our behalf through the sending of his son, Jesus. And when the church does that, our worship is right. We will be a people who, regardless of the circumstances, can always gather together and rejoice in what God has done. We can always be a people who come together with hearts full of acknowledging the superiority and supremacy of God. Knowing that He and He alone is sovereignly in control of our lives and we desperately need Him. And we can always give thanks for what God is doing, has doing, and what God will do. Now keep in mind, church, this is what we collectively should be doing every time the body of Christ comes together. And as we think about this season of the year, rejoicing and giving thanks, I want to lead us this morning as a church family to focus our thankfulness upon one kind, gracious act of God in the life of this church over the course of the last several years. 
by God's grace and through your faithfulness, we achieved a goal that I challenged you with over a year ago to take October of 2022 through October of 2023 and let's retire the debt on the education building and through God's work in our lives, he led us to accomplish that task, not October through October, but October through April. From October of 2022 to April of 2023, you, we, responded in great faith and paid off the remaining debt of that education building. You can clap for that. If you remember, we scheduled a day to celebrate the opening of that building, but that joy got robbed from us by the closing of all entities through COVID. Literally, the Sunday we were set to go in the education building, COVID hit, and we couldn't do our celebration. So I'd like to ask a collection of people to join me this morning as we pause for a few moments in the life of this church to say thank you, God, for what you have accomplished in our midst. I'm going to ask Mr. Dustin Beebe. Dustin, for 10 years, served as the chairman of the committee that was tasked with the responsibility of raising funds for this building. I'm going to ask Dustin to lead off our moment of reflection and giving thanks to God as he reflects for a few moments on where we started, the process, and where God brought us. Uh, in my humanity, I'd love to say that, you know, we as a committee met together, we, we came up with a plan, and we, everything went executed according to that plan. Uh, the reality is, is that it didn't go that way. Um, many, as you guys might know, we had a lot of different changes. The building changed, right? We started as initially as another building, and then this building here uh, in a different form, and then eventually that became the building that we know today. And as well, the funding way we work to raise funds for the building changed entirely, right? So what we can see in, in our humanity as, as that committee, you know, really changed over that time. And it was really God that was in control, right? As you look at this, Lewis, as your, you know, instruction, as you came in as pastor, right? I mean, this started even before, you know, you came I'll in. I'll tell you a funny story, Dustin. This church voted on me the second Sunday in March. Not one person through the entire interview process told me that you guys were considering building a building. And we had an associate pastor here at the time by the name of Chuck Lobman, who was known as being a practical jokester. If you know Brother Chuck, he loves to play a joke on somebody. So the very next Sunday, I called him that Sunday night and said, hey, Brother Chuck, how did church go? And he was like, oh, it was great. He said, we had a business meeting tonight, and the church voted to, to build a new education building. And I said, oh, Brother Chuck, you're so funny. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> he said, no, 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 I'm serious. I'm like, ha, 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 yeah, yeah, you're funny. Really, how did church go? And he was like, no, seriously, we voted to build a new building. <laughs> what? So, you know, I think that's, you know, as you look back on it, you know, God was always in control. Yes. Not one person on that committee, on the building committee, even in pastoral leadership can, can take credit for, you know, what God did there, that he acted and he brought the people uh, to the, that building program, to the building committee, you know, Caleb, thank you for all your leadership and guidance in the committee there. And on everybody, I think a lot of people in this body can say how they were involved in this new building. And God brought them along, brought their talent, uh, 
uh, along at the time to bring about his will and his way. And I think for me, it's been a, a great test in my life, and I've seen God act in this. Uh, with my beings with Lewis and Caleb and everybody, I've seen that only one person mm. is coordinated. Yes. And that's God. So Amen. This has been, uh, you know, we call it building on faith. It definitely built faith in me. Yes. I, I hope it has for everybody mm. uh, here. And, you know, the, the goal of this building from day one from this church was to pass that along to the next generation. And we mm. need to tell these stories like you just told me. Yes. And we need to tell that to our children. My children are sitting up there. They can, they can hear this. And, uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't get a chance to get educated in this building. They were a little bit older at the time. But, you know, they can see God working uh, mm. in this body. And that, what a testimony. This is, and we should rejoice uh, of what God's done for this and memorialize this moment uh, in, in our lives and, and keep bringing it. Yes. A number of you served on this fundraising committee. <laughs> Dustin had like a 12-year sentence on the committee. If you, along this journey, served on the Building on Faith team, would you just stand for a few moments and let the church express to you our appreciation of your, of your service? Thank you. Thank you, Dustin, for your leadership in this way as well. I'd like to ask Zach and Dana Truitt uh, to come. Zach and Dana have been at Woodlawn for over 30 years and had the joy of raising their family, their children in the life of this church. And now Zach and Dana are having the joy of seeing uh, not only the, uh, some of their children still involved in the life of this church, but now you have, you have grandchildren. And as Dustin mentioned just a few moments ago, our heart's desire for this building was that through the ministries in that building, we might tell the next generation the glorious truth of God's Word. Would you guys just give thanks to God for a few moments of, of the joy it is and, and seeing uh, that building and how it's being used to bring about the truth of God's Word even in the life of your family? Asbestos, I know. Our hearts are just filled with joy, and especially the Lord. Uh, we've been here since the 80s. And we came shortly after this building was constructed, and uh, we still have a head on So we, we went through the, the, uh, the fundraising efforts to, to pay this building off. I want you this to sanctuary building. This sanctuary building, right. So imagine all the, the, the sermons have been preached, the, the songs have been lifted up to the Lord, the, the, uh, just every, every event, the baptisms, the, the weddings, everything that this building has accomplished for God during that time. So we had a, after that, we built the Family Life Center. Uh, imagine everything that's happened in that Family Life Center. This upward basketball uh, was a result of having that building. Um, I don't know if you've been to upward games, but there's a Halftime devotion in every game, which is normally a gospel presentation. Um, every practice, kids learn a devotion. Um, they're, they're, they're awarded stars. Uh, the best star is Christ-like star. Um, 
think of all the things, the Wyoming program, the, the youth, all the certain, you know, summer school lessons that have been done in that building, and just it's been to God's glory. When we started on this new building, I was a lot younger, I had hair back then. Uh, <laughs> I had some hair back then. But it was a, it was a long process, like, like Dustin stated. Uh, you know, just to see, we're so privileged to be in a church family that, that to serve the Lord and, and our heart is for evangelism and, and sharing the Word of God with the next generation and one after that. So we, we have the privilege of being in a, a new Sunday school room and, and preach, but it's a short walk down the hall to our grandkids are being led to the Lord. And that means so much. Our responsibility as family, as, as parents, is to lead our kids to Christ. Bottom line. So um, this building is able to do that. So we, we've all, our families have been Thanks, thanks to the people in the building committee, that's not all his work for. Caleb doesn't want recognition, but he deserves a huge debt of gratitude for all the work he did to put into the building. So, thank you, guys. Thank you, Zach and Dana. I'd like to ask Brother Bill and Ms. Francis. I, when I asked them, Ms. Francis said, now, Brother Lewis, will you please let us speak from the floor? And I said, absolutely. Uh, Bill and Francis have a long-tenured relationship with this church. 1999. 1999, but before that, for many, many years at Foster Road Baptist Church, and when my family and I first came here, Miss Francis was teaching with David Stevens. What age, Miss Francis, were you? Three-year-old. She was a three-year-old Sunday school teacher, and Bill and Francis, Francis have, have served the Lord for many years, faithfully, and I wanted you to hear directly from them the joy it is for them to see what God has done in the life of this church, and particularly with the successful completion of that building and it being paid off. We are so thankful. Am I on or not? Yeah. I am. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm ready. Okay, we're very And I'll have to just say she died in the Lord. But in our thankfulness, we all I know that we have a responsibility to teach others about Jesus, especially our children. And I have been so blessed to work with children here at Old Woodland. And we're just blessed and thankful that God has placed us here, even in our old age. And I told Pastor Lewis, when this building was paid off, I said, oh, I thought I'd be in heaven before this building was paid off. <laughs> but I'm not in heaven yet, but I'm ready. But again, we're very thankful, and to God be the glory. Many years ago, as a young man, <clears throat> we bought our first house. And we got a 30-year loan on that house. And I thought to myself, with my wife, <clears throat> 30 years, we'd never pay that thing off. And I was about 22 or three years old. And sure enough, after so many years, the house was paid off. And we were so thankful for that. And when they started on this building here, and we had <clears throat> owed a million dollars, 
I said, never in my lifetime will we pay off this building. But through the grace of the Lord to provide people like yourselves willing to sacrifice over the years and look forward to the day that we could say the building now belongs totally free of debt. And we just thank you for the opportunity we had a small part to help pay it off. Thank you very much for your generosity. Thank you for the Lord giving us the opportunity and the provision to be able to do it. Amen. Thank you. Oh, I have one more thing to say. No. <laughs> I always have one more thing to say. Uh, I don't know how many of you all were here, but we wrote uh, scriptures verses on the foundation of this building. I wrote John 3.16. I wrote John 3.16. Not the whole thing out. I've got to be that. <laughs> thank you, Miss Francis and Brother Bill and Truitts and Dustin. Thank you guys for helping us reflect for a few moments on the graciousness and kindness of, of you and the Lord ultimately in accomplishing what in so many ways was, uh, as Miss Francis said, I thought I'd be in heaven, Brother Lewis, when this building got paid off. Would you take your worship guides with me for just a moment? I want you to turn to page 12 or 13. It's two blank pages. It's two blank pages. You remember I said to you a few moments ago, these words rejoice, pray, give thanks, they're all in the plural, and rightly understood, happen correctly as the body of Christ comes together. Would you pause for a few moments and write down a few things that you're thankful to God for in the life of this church? What are blessings that you've received from your connection to the body of Christ here at Woodlawn for which you'd like to just say, thank you, God? Would you take a few moments?
In just a moment, we're going to corporately stand and give thanks to God for Christ, our steady anchor, the one who calms our hearts, steadies our lives, the one who gives us joy. And ultimately, friends, as we think about the imperatives of this text, as we think about the words to this song that we're going to sing, we rightly understand that we can only accomplish these things in Christ. If you're here today and you've never trusted in the person of Christ, Christ has never redeemed you from your sin, you'll never be able to rightly give thanks. You'll never rightly pray without ceasing. You'll never rightly rejoice. But would you know today that Christ, on your behalf, has paid your sin debt by giving His life on the cross? The Bible says that He who knew no sin became sin. And He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. A transaction has to take place. He's taken our sin. We must take His righteousness. And that righteousness is given to you and me through faith. The Scripture says, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you trust in Christ today? Would you believe in Him? As we sing, if you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. Please feel free to come forward and ask us what that looks like. We'll be glad to share that with you. But friend, you don't have to come forward and speak to one of us. You can turn to someone seated next to you. There are plenty of people seated next to you that would be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. Secondly, perhaps you'd like for one of us to pray with you that these aspects that we saw this morning, these, these characteristics of a Christian might indeed be evident in your life. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ, this would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Would you stand with me this morning as we respond? Lord, we ask today that as we respond to you, to your word, that our response might be pleasing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.